My title this morning, working for the weekend, is from a song from the 1980s by the band Loverboy, which um, the title is, is Working for the Weekend. And it's funny because I went back and I looked at the lyrics to that song, and it's really not much about work at all. It's about everything you want to do other than work, which is sort of fitting because it's Labor Day weekend, and Labor Day weekend is just strange. We celebrate labor and workers by doing anything but work for a long weekend, right? It pretty well sums up, I think, our culture's very strange relationship with work. 40-hour work week. Most of us, if you work a full-time job, spend more. According to studies that I looked at this last week, Americans spend more hours per week at work than any other country in the industrialized world. We take less vacation, we earn less vacation than most places around the world, and we only take about half of what we earn. We tend to eat at our desks if we, ha- if we live in an office, or we work in an office. Feels like we live in an office. We send emails at night and over the weekends, and we get less job satisfaction and take less pride in our work than most people in most other countries. For all of the time we spend at work, we're pretty ambivalent about our work. It's one of those things that we rarely stop and think about from a faith perspective. Because we tend to think of our faith as a culture as either a weekend thing or a private thing, but not a Monday to Friday nine-to-five thing. But lately, if you paid attention to the news at all, we've been reminded that what we do in our day-to-day working lives matters for our faith as well. Can a Christian cake baker legitimately refuse to make a cake for a gay wedding? Regardless of the legalities, how should a Christian businessman or woman live out their faith And what should they be willing to accept as the consequences for following Christ? Our faith matters in our work, even if we don't quite know how that works its way out. So today I want to explore some of the myths about work that we all too often believe or simply accept on the one hand, and God's plan for work on the other. And I am going to be all over the place. But I'm going to start at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3 is interesting to me um, because it's all about how we live as Christians. In verses 1 and 2, we read, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Paul says that our position in Christ changes or should change the way we view the world. Set your hearts and minds, your essential self, on things of God, not things of the earth. And if we stop there, after verse 2, we're tempted to believe that to worry about things like work at all would be wrong. After all, work is an earthly thing. 
But that's the problem with stopping at a single verse or two. Because in verses 5 to 11, we read a list of things to avoid, a list of sins, earthly things. In verses 12 to 14, we get a list of virtues, what our lives as Christians ought to look like individually, earthly ways of interacting. In verses 15 to 17, we get to the life of the body of Christ, that Christ's message is to permeate everything that we are, dwelling in us richly, Paul says. It's to soak down into us and change us and make us more like him. And in verse 17, we read, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus earthly things. Verses 18 to 24, and then chapter 4, verse 1, speak to Christian households. Wives and husbands, children and fathers. And in verse 22 and following, it addresses slaves. The Roman Empire basically survived, thrived on slavery. And it's not the same as an employer-employee relationship, but there's a lot of things that carry over. And this is what verses 22 to 25 say. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. And as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Those who do wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. And then in verse chapter 4, verse 2, Paul goes back to the spiritual things about devoting ourselves in prayer. And there's a lot of things going on in this passage. There's a ton of things going on in this passage, but I want us to notice two things. First, setting our hearts on things above does not mean that the things here and now don't matter. What it does mean is that what we pay attention to and why we do what we do changes. Our approach changes to the way that we orient ourselves in the things that we do day in and day out. And second, I want us to see that clearly here, our attitude matters. Over and over in this passage, Paul gives instructions about our attitudes. Certainly in that section to slaves about work, our attitude matters. So I wonder... How's your attitude about work? I find that most of us have roughly four approaches to work, and sometimes simultaneously, sometimes in rapid succession, and sometimes we are defined by one more than the others. And the first attitude I like to call, take this job and shove it. It was made famous by Johnny Paycheck, appropriate name, in the 1970s. And the chorus said, Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. My woman done left and took all the reasons I was working for. You better not try to stand in my way because I'm walking out the door. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. 
it's kind of interesting to me that for most of the song, he admits that he doesn't have the guts to actually do what he wants to do. But that's the way he feels. And a side note, um, as is clear, I love looking at pop music to see how we think about things in our culture. And it was really interesting to me that when I did searches this past week, country music talks about work far more than any other kind of music. And money seems more important to pop singers than work. And Johnny Paycheck conveys this attitude that work is something I have to endure. It's something I tolerate. It's the ugh, it's Monday morning feeling, right? And it's understandable in a lot of situations. When your work doesn't seem to matter, when it's mind-numbing or back-breaking, or when your boss is terrible, when morale is awful. And we've all been there, maybe even this past week. But Paul is clearly telling us in Colossians 3 that take this job and shove it is not an appropriate way for us to set our hearts. And the second approach, the sort of opposite approach, is the find your passion approach. And we tell this to high school kids and college students all the time. We repeat cherished nuggets like, my so-and-so, my father, my grandfather, my whomever, used to always say, find something you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life. And that's a lie. It's well-meaning, but there's a problem. For a lot of people, finding their passion is simply not an option. They have limited options, and they've got to put food on the table. And I'm pretty sure that if Paul had told the slaves in the first century, the Roman Empire, the equivalent, the first century equivalent of find your passion, they would have responded with the first century equivalent of what are you smoking? Sometimes we don't have the option to follow our passions. And sometimes we don't know what our passions are. How many times did people that you know at their freshman year in college change their majors because they had no idea? I did. And then there's another problem. Our passions change. They're fickle. You know, have it your way is a good slogan for selling hamburgers. It's not a good way to live your life. Sometimes what we want, what we're passionate about, we're not good at. Sometimes what we're passionate about isn't good for us. It's bad. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? It's not exactly a ringing endorsement for following our passions. It's not that we can't or shouldn't want to do something that we love. That's not what Jeremiah is saying. And it's not the point of the passage in Colossians 3. The issue is our hearts, our attitude, what drives us. If you find something that you love, great. But watch yourself. It's easy to get starry-eyed and miss the opportunity right in front of your face because it doesn't feel right. 
And that's the warning of Proverbs 12, 11, which says, Those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. Then there's the third approach, the get-all-you-can approach, the workaholic. They're always connected, always at the office, or always working on a project. They always have an angle to get more. And they let their relationships languish, and they push on to get more and more and more. And this approach, this particularly American approach, I would add, in many ways, is the warning of Jesus in the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. If you turn there for just a moment, in verse 15, when Jesus had been asked about inheritance, Jesus said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves but are not rich toward God. And in this parable, Jesus is not saying that money is unimportant or that inheritance or fairness don't matter. He doesn't say that working to build something is a problem. Instead, he asks a question. What are you relying on? What motivates you? Is it greed? Work is more than the way that we get to accumulate stuff. And all that stuff can't really provide security anyway. And then there's the fourth approach. The meh approach. You've all seen the emojis. You've probably seen the GIFs over the animated uh, posts on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. It's ambivalence. Lack of drive or interest at all. This is the lazy person of Proverbs. The one who isn't interested at all in working. And they're always looking for amusement or entertainment and distraction from the real world. And Proverbs 6, verses 6 to 11 says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come at you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. You notice that all four of these attitudes have something in common. The central driving motivation of all of them is how I feel. And Paul's admonition in Colossians 3 shows us that this is a problem. When we start with I, 
we start from the wrong space. The Bible doesn't start with us. Genesis starts with God. So does the Gospel of John. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. God comes first. And James tells us the same thing. He tells us especially, this is especially true when it comes to our plans for work. If we look at James chapter 4, verses 13 to 15, we read, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Haven't we found that out this week? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, but if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. God first, not a tacked on thing that we say so that we can sound more spiritual, not something that we claim so that we can get out of doing something we don't want to do, but an attitude that puts God first in the things that we do. Our feelings aren't bad. They aren't to be ignored, but they're also not the sum total of how we evaluate things, of how we approach our lives. Sometimes our feelings are right, and sometimes our feelings are wrong. And sometimes, even when our feelings are right, they can't be the things that drive our decisions and our attitudes. Our attitudes toward work should be one that starts with God and reflects the admonition of Paul in Colossians 3. That we set our hearts, our minds on things above. That we let the peace of Christ dwell in us richly. If we start with ourselves and base it solely on our feelings, we're never going to be able to sustain the right attitude. And often those attitudes that we have are off kilter in the first place because we really don't have a good sense of why we work in the first place. Which is our second point. Purpose statements. Why do we do this? If you've ever been in a corporate environment of any kind, well, honestly, if you've been around a church in the last 20 years, you've heard about purpose statements and mission statements. They aren't exactly the same. Purpose statements are about why something is done, and mission statements are about specifically what an organization does, but they've, since the 19th, they've become a really big deal. And, and this was the thing that, as I was thinking about this, was very interesting to me. Since the 1990s, even artists are taught to create artist statements describing their work. Talk about trying to systematize something that defies being systematized. Ultimately, the goal is to get at why things matter. And when it comes to work, like our attitudes, I see four general approaches to the why of work. Think of these as sort of like the food pyramid, if you remember that from school. And work at, um, we start on the bottom level with get. Work allows us to get th things, to gain something materially. In the modern world, typically, that's money, but not always. In the world of the Bible, money didn't exist the same way it does for us today, not for most of it, anyway. Wealth was about land and flocks and herds and the tangible material things that could be produced by those. 
food or lumber or ore or wool or even luxury items. And getting is certainly a part of working. In 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul tells Timothy that elders who direct the affairs of church, especially those who preach and teach, are to be paid. In that verse, he quotes the law and he quotes Jesus to show a direct connection, to weave a thread throughout Scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy 25.4, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out grain. The point? Even beasts of burden are to be taken care of, to be paid, if you will, for the work that they do. And Paul applies this teaching to people. And then he quotes Jesus from Luke 10, 17, when Jesus sends out the 72 disciples as itinerant ministers. And Jesus tells them it's okay to take food and drink from the houses where they stay because workers deserve their wages. And Jesus takes a general principle, or Paul takes Jesus' general principle and applies it to the itinerant ministers. Jesus did too. So it's not wrong to get things, to receive wages for our work. The problem is that when we are consumed by the wages, the money, that we fall into a trap. Hebrews 13.5 warns us that to keep yourselves free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10, gives an even stronger warning. And this is what Paul says there. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 6 said, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In none of these places do we see that earning is wrong. What we do say is that being captured by money is. But earning isn't the only reason why we work. The next step in the pyramid is that Working allows us to provide. We need to provide for ourselves and others, most specifically our families. Paul, again, in 1 Timothy 5.8 says, Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In the Sermon on the Mount, when teaching about asking God and God's provision, Jesus says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And this backdrop of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is important because Jesus assumes that we will provide for our families. The way that he states this in this passage is basically saying everyone knows this 
all of you would do this, would provide for your family. So first we get, then we provide, and third, work allows us to contribute. It allows us to move beyond our immediate responsibilities and contribute to our society, our culture, our world. In Acts, the early church held all things in common so that they could care for one another. We see this over and over again. And we see Paul take collections from, from one church in one place to other poorer churches, especially for the church in Jerusalem. The churches took care of one another. Their work allowed them to contribute. If we think beyond church more broadly as a culture, I'm going to use an example that all of us hate. We all groan about it every April. Taxes. No one likes paying taxes, right? If you do like paying taxes, come see me because I have a new one for you. I call it the, I have two college-age kids and a third one on the horizon, and my wife would like to go get her teaching degree tax. But taxes, when everything is working as it should, are there for a reason. We need government infrastructure. We need roads. We need commerce, right? We need defense. We need to be able to take care of those who cannot take care of themselves for whatever reason. When government doesn't do things well, these things well, society breaks down. We can debate the lines for where government should act and where it shouldn't, but pretty much everyone recognizes that there are a few basic things that governments are actually there for, that they are ordained by God to carry out. So taxes, our work, allows us to contribute. But beyond taxes, or perhaps before taxes, our work contributes to the building of society. Think about it. We need farmers to grow our food. We need builders to make our houses and the places where we work and the grain elevators that we need in order to store the corn, the food that the farmers grew. We need doctors to care for us when we're sick to make sure that we can continue to work and provide for our families. We need teachers to help us to understand how the world works and prepare us to be useful members of society. We need programmers and accountants and lawyers and salespeople and even, yes, marketers and entertainers. In Exodus 21, God tells Moses that he had specifically chosen craftsmen to design and build the tabernacle and the altars and the lampstands and the other accessories right down to the garments of the priests. And he names several by name. He names the craftspeople by name, the artists by name. Apparently, society needs all of us in the various things that we do as work, because our work allows us to contribute to the growth of society. And sometimes we do it better, and sometimes we do it worse, and sometimes we do it in frivolous manners, and sometimes we do it in important manners. But it allows us to contribute. The fourth way is that our work allows us to become. This one's a little bit trickier. 
to get our heads around. It's harder to find a specific verse to support, but work helps us to grow as people, to become who we are and perhaps who we're meant to be. When we start a job, any job, regardless of whether it's your career or just to stop on the road of life, chances are you were not good at doing whatever it was that you started to do. You had to learn it. There's a learning curve. There's technique to master. There's vocabulary to learn that probably you had not heard of before. There's skills to acquire. And repetition helps. And so does having the ability to follow instructions or a mentor to help you to learn what to do and when to do and how to do it. If you've ever had to do a job and not been given any instruction on how to do it, it's unbelievably frustrating. I mean, if it's maybe generally in your field or area of expertise, maybe you can figure it out fairly easily. But what if it's got nothing to do with anything you do on a normal day-to-day life, and you just have to start? Where do you start? And I think this idea of becoming is found in Scripture because we look at the lives of the people we see. Think about Moses. He needed time in the desert to be shown by God what he was to do. And later, his father-in-law has to sit him down and explain, hey, you can't do everything yourself. You need to appoint people to help carry the load. Joseph becomes prime minister of Egypt, but he doesn't start there. Arguably, his arrogance and the way that he talked to his brothers made their jealousy of him grow worse. His trials shaped him, and they made him wise. Elijah teaches Elisha. Jesus spends three years with 12 disciples, teaching them how to be like him, how to follow him. And it's only after he's gone that they become what they were going to be. And that becoming never really stopped because Paul has to rebuke Peter at one point. And all of this happens in the context of the work that they did in life. Work helped them to become, helped shape them. And it wasn't just the good stuff and it wasn't just the easy stuff. It was the challenges in life, the hard parts. Those are the things that force us to grow most, right? To become what we're supposed to be? Could the disciples have stood? Could they have all, basically, to a person, have been martyred in the way they were if they hadn't seen what Jesus went through? I don't think so. But all of these four purposes, as good and necessary as they are, are not enough on their own. But when we take them together, I think they point us to a better why. They point us beyond simply ourselves. See, think about this. Genesis 1.26 tells us that we're created in the image of God. And Genesis 2.15 tells us that the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. That's before the fall. Hebrews 1.3 says, The sun is the exact radiance of God's glory. 
and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. By his powerful word. John 15, 17, Jesus says, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Augustine, one of the church fathers, according to many sources, commented on this verse and said, Let us therefore believe that God works constantly so that all created things would perish if this working were withdrawn. God continues to work now, and if he didn't, there would be nothing. We're created in God's image, and this God that we're talking about is a God who works, who creates, who is constantly at work, sustaining, giving us work to do. And we need to remember that that toil part of work, the Monday morning ugh part of work, comes after the fall, but work does not. Work is a gift from God for us because our God is a God who works and who wants us to be like him. In a very real sense, work is a grace that God bestows on us. We work because it is one of the ways that we are connected to who God is, which leads us to the bigger picture. What's really important? At this point, it's really, really easy to think, okay, fine. I might buy this, but what about me right now? I don't like my work. It doesn't seem to matter. What am I supposed to be doing? And all of those are good questions. And I have lost track of the amount of times that I have asked a similar question. We all ask those questions. When we're young, we have angst about figuring out what we should do for the rest of our lives. Women have questions regularly. Family, career. And it seems that no matter what choice is made, they're going to end up feeling guilty or second-guessing the choices of those choices. We see it all the time. Men often hit middle age and seriously question what they're doing with their lives. I will not forget friend, Sugar Grove Campus, coming to the end of his career and he's like, did what I do really matter at all? And I understand it. And the answer is actually yes. All of this... All of us have these questions. And then as Christians, we have another level of questioning that we ask. Does what I'm doing matter becomes, does what I am doing matter to God, to his kingdom? And if we're not careful, these questions can be debilitating. And just like our attitude toward work, our understanding of its purpose, we, we get off track. We think of some work as really important and some not so much. We divide it in two ways, right? The first we consider secular work. It's a word we use. It's the not spiritual stuff. It's not bad, but it's not good either, right? Farmers and ditch diggers and painters and engineers and marketers. They were pretty sure that last one might be bad. There are some jobs kind of work that 
we can honestly say, okay, this is not and cannot be good. Hitmen and mobsters and fraudsters and thieves and prostitutes come to mind, right? But think about what we call secular for a moment. Let's review the list from Hebrews 11 that we've been going through and that we'll finish up the series next week. Abel, shepherd. Noah, shipwright. Abraham, shepherd. Isaac, shepherd. So too Jacob. Joseph was a shepherd, then a household manager, ultimately prime minister. Moses, a general, shepherd, spokesperson, leader. Rahab, prostitute. Not an endorsement, proof of what God can do. The list goes on. These are the men and women that God uses throughout Scripture. In fact, by this list and a few others, if you want to be used mightily by God, go get yourself some sheep. But the often held perception in church is that secular jobs are there simply to pay for the work that the people on the flip side, the sacred side, do. The spiritual jobs, pastors and missionaries, people who teach us about God and are somehow closer to God. It's not a new belief. In Exodus, the people of Israel want Moses to go up the mountain to talk to God because they're afraid and they really didn't want to be confronted by the reality that of who he was and what he would require of them. Better to have an intermediary, somebody to step in between God and me. But it's really interesting to me that that list in Hebrews 11, no priests are named. Not a single one. We don't even, we rarely know the names of the priests in the Old Testament. And the priest was the person who represents the people before God. Right? We may live in a culture of celebrity pastors, but I'm telling you, it's not in Scripture. These are the people who acted spiritually but could own no land and build no cities. The ones that we do know were generally corrupt. And that's why we know who they were. And this list in Hebrews 11 includes only two that are counted as prophet, prophets, though it does reference others. Moses and Samuel, the greatest prophet, and arguably the first of a new kind, transitioning from the judges to the prophets. The prophets represented God to humanity. And because of Jesus, we are told we no longer need priests, not in the sense of interceding before God on our behalf. We can go directly to him. But pastors, perhaps prophets, are still important. Jesus sends out the 12. He sends out the 72. He commissions his disciples to preach the gospel to all nations. Pastors and elders perform a vital and important role. It's the job of pastors to teach us, to lead us to Christ-likeness. It's important. But remember who those disciples were. The twelve were the secular kids who didn't make the cut for rabbinical school. They were fishermen and tax collectors and political hotheads, literally. What they became was more than their jobs. And there is a better way for us to think about this sacred, secular divide. A better way for us to see All of us have different jobs, right? 
Some are more spiritual on the surface. Except for that's not really true. And that's where we come to the idea of sanctified work. If our purpose in work is truly God-centered, if we do it because we are created in His image, because He is a God who works and we should too, if we do it with a heart focused on things of heaven, then no matter our work, it's sanctified. Dallas Willard said this, Pastors are sent to make disciples of Jesus, apprentices to Jesus in kingdom living. Life is primarily devoted to work. All legitimate work is devoted to the creation of value, of what is good to a lesser or greater degree. That was God's plan. He not only creates, he creates creators, you and me. One of the saddest things in human life is the desecration of work in a loveless world. Discipleship to Jesus, properly guided by pastors, enables individuals to find their work, a divine calling, and see the hand of God in their efforts to create what is good and to serve others in love. It's interesting. Dallas Willard was not a pastor. He was a philosophy teacher in the California University system. And he saw that the sacred-secular split was a lie. James 1.27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Did you notice in that verse? There is no sacred-secular split. There is no... The things of earth, the things of heaven. Because it is all about how we approach the things of earth with a heavenly mindset. What we do, it's all sanctified in and through Christ. When we take Colossians 3 into account, our attitude toward work has to change. Our understanding of its purpose, its importance changes. All of it matters. And here, as I close, I think again about Dave Heidel. For decades, he ran buildings and grounds at Wheaton College. Not a particularly glamorous or spiritual job. He fixed things. He made things, he made sure the grass was cut, that the air conditioner worked. He supervised others. That was his job. And every year, he took a group of Wheaton College kids to Angola Prison. A place that people go to and don't leave. And no-nonsense Vietnam vet, plain-spoken, who had compassion for the least and the lost, He lived his life with the knowledge that there is no such thing as a sacred-secular split. It was really, in many ways, after he retired that he got paid for what he was, a pastor. He knew that work was sanctified. Jesus calls us to a different view of everything, including our work. And over the years, Dave taught me that by showing me. And for that, 
I am forever grateful. Thank you.